The Prince of Preachers and Pastor Charles Spurgeon is credited with this quote. If I had never joined a church till I found one that was perfect, I should never have joined one at all. In the moment I did join it, if I had found one, I should have spoiled it, for it would have been it would not have been it would not have been a perfect church after I had become a member of it. Now, this is the great Charles Spurgeon who has said that. And he also said, God grant that our churches may rise to their duty, however painful it may be. Yea, may they, be, may they keep close to the faith, so they cannot else be the pillar and ground of the truth. An unholy, unregenerated church can never be the pillar of the truth. Today, as we look at Acts 2, 42-47, we'll look at what the earliest church looked like through the words of Luke. There have been so many sermons given on this particular mess, passage that, honestly, <laughs> I found it really difficult to write this message because I have nothing new to say. There's nothing for me to bring that hasn't already been said before, but Maybe you're here today, and this might be the first time that you've heard a sermon on this passage, which is great. I'm excited to be able to do that. So, um, thank you for coming. And, uh, you know, one of the things that I, I thought of when I was, whenever I've read this passage, and when you'll be familiar with it once I read it, I always picture this as a little tiny congregation, you know, much, much like our church, you know, not a big church, but in actuality, as we have gone through the book of Acts over the last several weeks, this actually was a pretty good-sized church. They just had 3,120 members, so this is not, this is a lot larger than our church fellowship, but there is a lot of things that are in this passage that translate over to us that we can learn from and we will learn from today. And as we go through this together, I want us to ask some questions like, you know, how does our church at Calvary stack up to this model that Luke puts forth for us? And if we were in this church in Jerusalem in the first century, how would we fit in? How do we fit in now in our church at Calvary? And how and have times changed so much that this model no longer works. Are we, as Spurgeon would say here at Calvary, are we a pillar of truth in our community? These are all things that we need to ask ourselves and to work through from time to time. So let's read this passage together. We'll start here in Acts 2, starting in verses 42, and we'll go through 47, which is the end of chapter 2. Starting in verse 42, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and in the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as they had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread, in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. 
Uh, let's pray, and then we'll get started. Heavenly Father, Lord God Almighty, we just thank you again for your word, Lord. I, I pray in, in just with tremendous amounts of gratitude, Lord, for the church that you brought to us, the ability for us to join together as one, reminding ourselves, Lord, that we are here because of you, that we belong to you, that you are the ones who called us out of the darkness and into the light. And we are thankful for that, Lord. And I pray that as we look through this passage together this morning, that you would be glorified. You would speak through me, Lord, and into the hearts of the people here to hear what it is that you want us to be like by the example of this church in Jerusalem. I praise you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. And so what we're going to do here... And I, I name this sermon, normally I don't name sermons because honestly I'm not that creative, but I named this one the end of the story. And I thought, well, that was kind of clever actually, I like that. So why would I call it that? Well, when we look through this passage, the word and is used a, lo a lot. And so what we're going to do is there, is there is six points in this message. Now, don't be afraid. They're not six really long points that are going to take us two hours to go through. But we're going to see that there are these ands, these breaks that Luke puts together, they're natural breaks and how they go together and what we can learn from each one. It makes it easier to go through if we break it down that way. So the first one is we're going to look at verse 42. And they were devoted. And they were devoted. Verse 42 says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. So Luke brings to us that they, this church was, they were devoted, meaning that they gave their constant attention to these four things. And these four things that we see are pretty easy to pick out. The first one is to the apostles' teaching. The second is to the fellowship the third is sharing meals together, breaking bread. And the fourth one is prayer. Now when we think of things in our own lives, we realize that we can devote ourselves to a lot of things. Our children, our spouses, our friends, our jobs, our position at work, our finances, a sports team, um, a hobby. You know, you hear terms describing people through... Uh, through messages at funerals. You'll hear things like he was a devoted husband and father. She was a devoted wife and mother. Or she or he was a devoted to their job and their business. They were devoted churchgoers. They were devoted fans of the Broncos. I don't know why right now you'd be a devoted fan of the Broncos, but I am. So, But you get the idea. None of these things are bad but the one thing that we really want to be known for is our devotion to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and to the impact that we have in His kingdom. And Luke gives us these four things that we want to be devoted to first. Because as we talk about time and time again in our lives, Christ must be first in our life. Everything must flow second after Him in whichever order you want to put that in. But Christ must be first because everything flows from Him. So, 
the first thing that this, this, the church was devoted to was the apostles' teaching. The apostles' teaching. The study of God's word. Imagine how astounding it had to be to sit under the teaching of Peter, John, James, and the rest of the apostles. To live in the time of the New Testament when the words of Scripture were being lived out in person. Imagine what that had to be like. The words we read in our Bibles nearly 2,000 years later were being spoken for the first time. These inspired words of God. And these new believers, they wanted to understand what was next for them. They wanted to hear the apostles' accounts of Jesus and what it was like to live with him and sit under his teaching for three years. They heard how the Old Testament prophets spoke of Jesus years and years before he walked on the earth. They heard firsthand accounts of Jesus' crucifixion and his resurrection. Today, today, now, we have the privilege of reading these same stories and accounts of Jesus in our fourfold gospel message that we have in the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We can read the history of the church of the book of Acts. We receive instruction and encouragement through the epistles of Peter, Paul, and John. And we get a wonderful view of eternity through Revelation. But now that we are in the post-apostolic age, all of the apostles, and including the original twelve, Paul and Matthias, are now in heaven, our duty and our joy and our devotion is to the preaching and teaching of God's word through godly preachers and teachers. Paul's charge to, sec- to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4 was to preach what? The Word. The Word. He told him, preach the Word. He, said, he didn't say for him to preach his opinion. He didn't say that he was not to preach his latest joke. Not anything but the Word of God. Because it is the Word of God that is sharper than any two-edged sword. 2 Timothy three sixteen and 17 reminds us of this. Again, a familiar passage to most of us. All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. God's Word equips us, and it completes us. It is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correction, and training. For righteousness. If we want to know what it looks like to live for Jesus and have an impact on his kingdom, then we must read and study God's word. We must be willing to receive it and eat it as spiritual food. Matthew 4 4, Jesus said this as he was rebuking the devil when he was out in the wilderness during his 40 days of temptation. It says, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And then Luke himself says in Luke in his gospel, in Luke eleven twenty eight, he said, Jesus said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. And keep it. 
John Calvin said this. He said, the Bible is the scepter by which the heavenly king rules his church. Have you ever thought of it that way? The Bible is the holy scepter by which the heavenly king rules his church. These are God's promises, his warnings. And we must put ourselves under spirit-led teaching by spirit-led teachers who with great humility under the authority of the Lord preach and teach the word of God. The second thing that they were devoted to was to the fellowship, or to fellowship. Now the word for fellowship is koinonia. For those of us who have been around church world for a long time, it might be a familiar word, because in the small group ministries in the 80s and 90s, a lot of them were called koinonia groups, or fellowship groups. And the word describes an intimacy among these believers based on their common faith in Christ. They enjoyed being together, and look forward to spending time with one another. And that was both inside and outside their formal worship times. So they didn't get together just at church time. They got together and enjoyed being around each other all the time. As we go through the rest of the passage, we'll dig more into that. But keep in mind that worshiping together and hanging out together, eating together and praying together was a vital part of the lives of the early church. The third thing is the breaking of bread together. Now, doing study on this passage, there's a little bit of disagreement among scholars about whether the breaking of bread either includes or means totally just the, the taking of the Lord's Supper. Or does it mean taking the Lord's Supper and also eating meals outside of church together? Now, most of, the, most of them come down, as we mostly would, on the side that it includes both. Both means that the believers came together in the temple to take the Lord's Supper together and eat less formal meals also together in other people's homes. They enjoyed hanging out and spending time, sharing stories together over a meal, you know, there is nothing like when we get together and share a meal. Like, I love what part of my job, I know it's weird to think this, I never would have thought this when I worked in my secular world, that I would have a job where my job is to take people out and eat. But I like that, as you can tell. But, but not for the food, the food is fine, but it's for the conversation that comes. There's like a... There's like a, a something that just kind of breaks, like a barrier that breaks by sharing food together and eating and talking and hearing stories and listening to people open up and tell you things that they probably wouldn't tell you otherwise. It breaks that bond, that bondage between the two of us. There's a celebration that comes together when we share food together, the provisions of God, as well as it is when we come together as we do every week to take the Lord's Supper together, to remind ourselves of what Christ has done for us on the cross by the shedding of his blood. We come together as believers, and every week in our church, we take the Lord's Supper. So when we come together, and I love this word, you'll hear me use this word a lot, the ecclesia, I love that word, because this word means we are the called out ones, we are the church, we are the gathering of God's people. 
when we come together on Sunday and we think of that time when we come together, is there a sweetness for us to come together? Is there a joy? Do we look forward to going to church? Or is it just something we do that we feel like we have to do? Coming to church is a privilege. There are people in this world who are not able to come to church in the way that we come to church in fear of their lives. And yet they still gather together in small places in the dark and worship together. We are privileged here in this country, at least at this time, to be able to do that. Remember COVID? How awful that was for that short period of time when they didn't want us to meet together and we all complied for the most part and we didn't meet together? One of the things that I learned from that is that the church cannot survive unless it meets together. We are not designed to worship on our own from our couch at home. We are designed to worship the Lord together in His place. And for us, it's in this fine building that He has given to us. This beautiful sanctuary with this wonderful stained glass. The history that is in this place, this is where we are called together to meet. And if you are not here at church, if you miss a Sunday for some reason, let me ask you this. Do you miss us? Do you miss being here? Do you feel like something in your week is missing because you didn't get to come? If you don't feel that way, there's probably something wrong, and we need to figure that out. But I can assure you that when you are not here, even some of the folks that would normally be here this morning who are out of town, we miss them. We miss you. There's a hole in our congregation that is not filled when you're not here. We miss you when you're not here. The fourth thing they did was they prayed together. They prayed together. Now, I just want you to know that prayer is not fourth on the list because it's of the least importance, okay? No, it's, it's fourth because it's the culmination of all the other three. It is what naturally happens when we receive good teaching and when we love being in fellowship together, when we come to worship and hang out together over a meal. We start praying together because we matter to each other. We want to go to the Lord together and bear our souls together with Him because we trust each other to come together. We can share prayer requests like, hey man, I am really not doing well this week. I need you to pray for me. So they prayed together. They prayed together. Prayer is important. It is it is what we do when we recognize that we are not on the throne, but our Almighty Lord is. When we fully understand and believe that the Lord is sovereign over everything and we need wisdom from Him for our decisions, when loved ones and friends need healing from sickness, from cancer, from addictions, when marriages that are falling apart and need reconciliation and repair, when we come to the end of ourselves, we need the help of the only one who can provide that help. He is the first place we go to in prayer, not the last place we go to. Like the early church graphs, we too must be a church that prays together corporately and individually. 
And not just tell people, well, I'll pray for you, but to really pray for them. In fact, if you say, I will pray for you, why not just stop right then and pray for them? You're not in that big a hurry. I'm not in that big a hurry. So we have to understand that prayer, the privilege of being able to go into the throne room of God and bring our requests to Him to confess our sins, to ask Him for wisdom, to trust in Him for our provision is a privilege that He has granted us that we don't deserve. But He gives it to us. There is power in prayer. The prayers of a righteous man availeth much. I'm memorizing the King James, Don. Did you notice that? <laughs> it avails much. It brings much. The prayer of a righteous man. Who makes us righteous? Christ makes us righteous. We are not righteous on our own. We are justified because of what Christ did, not because of what we did. And yet, our prayers availeth much. God is good. Listen, encountering God brings us a holy reverence and a holy terror to us. We see His greatness and our neediness and our sinfulness. And this is what Luke is getting to as we turn to verse 43 now. And they were in awe. They were in awe is our second point. Verse 43 says, And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs are being done through the apostles. Terror came over every soul, over every person. And this awe means a godly fear of terror, of dread. That's not an awful dread like, oh man, I dread going to work. There is a dread of seeing who we are in the face of a holy God. And then being grateful for He doesn't just smite us at our very presence, but He loves us and He saves us. This is because we have an understanding of who God is. And we see that. These, the early church saw that through the signs and wonders of the apostles. This is part of the outpouring of the Spirit-filled apostles' Spirit-led teaching that they were under. There was a reverent fear of the holy God. They saw miracles and healings. These early believers saw the casting out of demons. Luke provides an account of this that we'll talk about here in a little while in Acts 5, 12-16. Listen to this. Now many signs and wonders are regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats. That as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. Imagine the apostles and seeing the signs and wonders, and it wasn't Peter that was doing the healing, but by the power of the Holy Spirit and what God had authorized in him, just bringing the people out who were sick 
and letting them, letting Peter's shadow just go over them, heal them. That had to be a time that would just blow our minds away to be in that time period in that first century church. It had to be crazy. Verse 16 in that passage is, And the people gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Remember that not long ago, in this passage in chapter 2, we talked about these Galileans, these uneducated men, and they were speaking in languages they didn't ever study. And people were amazed because they didn't know these men to be any different than fishermen and tax collectors and uneducated men. And here they were now. Now people were in awe of them because of what God was doing through them. Would you want God to do that sort of thing through you? Not for your glory, obviously. If it's for your glory, the Lord will never do it. But would you not love to see someone healed through you by the power of the Spirit as God worked in you? Would you not want to see someone change from death to life before your very eyes because you shared your testimony with them and God blessed them with faith to come to Christ? I'm telling you, man, I have experienced both of those things, and it is an amazing thing. I've told this story before. I'll tell it again. I was at a church one time, and I was in prayer. I was on the prayer team, and I was standing there at the end of service, and honestly, I was going through a tough time in my life with my faith, and I didn't really think that God was answering my prayers much, so I was the perfect guy to be on your prayer team, right? And so this guy comes up to me, and he says, um, he goes, hey, uh, my name's Jerome, and I have to go to my doctor tomorrow. They have found cancer tumors all over my body. And I'm like, he goes, can we just pray for my appointment? <laughs> That's all right. That's God calling right now. <laughs> anyway. So, so I said, Let's, why don't we just go ahead and pray that God would, would heal all of them? You know, I'll be honest with you, yeah, I'm willing to pray that, but I didn't really believe God was really going to heal him all that, like that. I have prayed for other people that had cancer in the past, and they didn't get healed. And so my, my actual faith level was fairly low, but we prayed. We prayed that God would heal him the next week. The next week, I'm, I'm in, taking my post there, on the, standing at the end of the stage, ready for prayer, and Jerome comes up to me. He goes, Scott, Scott. Yeah, Jerome, what's up? He goes, they're gone. They were all gone. They found no tumors in my body. And I was like astounded. <laughs> but, but God healed him. Now, I have to admit that I didn't see Jerome, but maybe once or twice after that. So to this day, I don't know what happened to him. But I know in that moment in time, God chose to remove the tumors from his body. I've seen God do amazing things and answer prayers in ways that, that we can't even imagine. 
I've seen him do signs and wonders that now I just want you to know like I said that every time that we pray for somebody to be healed it's all within God's will whether he will heal them or not and we should not feel like a failure that if we pray for healing and that person doesn't get healed one time I had to pray for they asked me to pray for our pastor who had cancer at a men's meeting so we had all the elders of the church I wasn't one and they asked me to pray no pressure. So I, I pray for our pastor who had cancer. He didn't get better. In fact, he died shortly thereafter. And our associate pastor, our other pastor, I, I, I really struggled with that. And he told me, he goes, Scott, you have to remember, God didn't heal him in this world, but he did heal him. It was like, that was a good thing to remember. But it's all within God's will that we get healed or we don't get or he heals or he doesn't he does these signs and wonders but anyway this is this is one of those amazing things about that so again as we look and we're told in verse 44 that they were together and they shared all things in common with each other our third point is that they were all together and had all things in common look in verse 44 and all who believed were together and had all things in common Believers had all things in common. But the biggest thing that they had in common, of course, was their shared faith in Christ. And i got to tell you, being a Christian has opened doors for me to meet people that I would never have met from other walks of life and positions and things that I would have no business even talking to them. Now, I have a friend who's a state senator in Colorado now, but I remember meeting him when he was uh, working in IT at our church. He's a great guy. I'm not going to tell you his name, but he's a great guy. I would never have met any of you if it wasn't for Christ. You would not have met me if it wasn't for Christ. Christ opens doors and brings things in common. But what do we have in common together that brings us together? Jesus brings us together. And I know that it seems obvious, but sometimes it gets lost in the translation. There's a unity in our fellowship. A love for each other and a bond from our transforming faith that only the gospel can provide. Peter writes this in 1 Peter 3.8. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, in a humble mind. Peter calls for the church to be unified in our mind, our belief in one gospel, to love each other, to be tender in our hearts, which brings a humble mind and a humble spirit. A humble mind that is not focused on self, but is focused on others. Paul writes this in Romans 12.10, Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. That should be what we strive for. To love one another and to outdo one another by showing honor to each other. Not ourselves, but to others. To others. There was a guy I met in Japan a long time ago when... Um, back in the early 90s, and, and I had just become a Christian, actually, while I was in Japan. 
And the, I was there for work, and we were there for like a month, and then we would rotate people in. So I would, you'd be there when you got there with somebody for a week, and they would train you about where to go around in Tokyo and how to get around and do things. And then in your last week, you would do that for the next person who came in. Well, the guy that came in to relieve me, um, I got to know him, and he was a guy that, you know, there's people in your life that you come in contact with that just really irritate you from the beginning. You know, it's like, it's like you just clash right away. There's nothing about this person that I really like. And, and we were walking along the streets of Tokyo, and we came across this art exhibit where, I mean, it was just awful. They, in one of the pictures, that, or one of the things that they had, and there was a display of several crucifixes hung upside down. And even as a new Christian, it made me sick to my stomach. And we, you know, I commented that, you know, that I was a Christian and that really bothers me. And he said, well, gosh, I'm a Christian too. And when I found out, we found out that each of us were Christians, that night, we spent hours after dinner in our rooms just talking about Jesus and what we had in common. And he became a dear friend of mine. This guy that was like oil and water that I wouldn't even want to be around for five minutes. Why? Because of Jesus. He brought us together and we were unified in who we are. Yesterday I got a text from Crystal. I didn't tell Crystal I was going to do this, but I'm going to do it anyway. And it was a text of Don playing the guitar over at the Kemner's house, singing, singing with the kids. And I was just, my heart was touched by the fact that you were all together and not because of anything other than singing about Jesus and probably eating, but singing, but singing about Jesus. It was awesome. Or this week that, that Roy and I and, and Henry went to Monta Vista to see Matt. And I, on, the, on the way back, I was so tired, I asked Roy to drive, and, and Roy and Henry sat in the front of our vehicle, and I sat in the back, and, and I just listened for like two and a half hours to Roy and Henry talk about the old days of La Junta together. It was one of the most beautiful moments I've ever been a part of. These two men have became really good friends. They, they were friends. I mean, Roy came up to me and goes, I don't even have Henry's number. So I gave him Henry's number. So now you probably hear from Roy all the time. But the joy, the beauty, the love of the fellowship and what brings us together, Jesus does. We have things in common, but it's Christ that brought the church together. Our fourth point then is that they were giving generously. Acts 2.45. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Out of their love and obedience to Jesus and his teaching, these early believers were generous. They were selling their possessions and distributing them to others that were in need. Now, here are some observations from this, okay? They were not under compulsion to do any of these things. They gave generously and sold their possessions because they wanted to. 
They wanted to. Now, I want us to understand that this does not put guilt on us. Okay? I'm not saying that we have to go and just sell all of our possessions. Now, God may ask you to do that. I am not God. And so, thankfully for all of us, and I am not going to ask you to do that. But there are going to be times when you will be asked to give generously. This is, this is a message where I'm going to use a lot of illustrations from our church, and so I might embarrass a few people, but my friend Jeannie, yesterday, or no, two days ago, was with Kat. Kat was looking for a place, and Jeannie helped her find one. And then she went around town and helped Kat be able to find things to fill her place. And I, I was, this is, this is exactly what is happening here. And they went to the Kemner's house, and Crystal said, what do you need? And I, I mean, this is what the church is. Thank God for you. I am so encouraged. We may not be the biggest church there is, but by golly, we are doing things that God has called us to do. And I am excited for all of you, and I am proud to be your pastor. Because none of this is my idea. You did this on your own. And I am grateful for that. You gave out of your own free will. We understand that, that the things that we have don't belong to us. They're gifts from the Lord. We rent everything, including people. People don't belong to us either. We're to hold everything that we have with open hands and open fingers and like holding water. Have you ever tried to hold water? It doesn't work very well. We keep things that we have for a season, for as long as God wants us to, and then we must be willing to let it slip from us and to be used for his kingdom and his glory later on. James 2 14 through 17 says this. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to him, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Now, what we know from that passage is that he's not saying that works save us. But our works are an outpouring of our faith. If we just sit on our faith in our homes and never put it to use, it's as good as dead. Crystal said, what do you need? And went through her house and helped Kat fill her house. That's how it's done. Thank you, Crystal. Paul writes this in 2 Corinthians 9, 6, and 7. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give us 
as he has decided in his heart. And reluctantly, or not reluctantly, or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. We are to help those that are less fortunate than ourselves. And these, the early church knew this. It was part of their law. Deuteronomy 15.11 says, for, those, for there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy and to the poor in your land. This is what we are to do. We are to love the poor and be generous to them. Understand that there is a need out there and we are called to be helpers to fill that need. Now verses 46 and 47, they refer back to verse 42. When Luke said that these new believers were devoted to the breaking of bread together, and Luke defines what they did a little further in verses 46 and 47. So the fifth point is that they worshipped and ate together while enjoying favor with the people. 46 and 47 says, And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. We see, we see a unity of purpose here. A unity of love, a unity of fellowship. Now, we have to remind ourselves that not all unity is good. Sometimes we can be unified over things that are not helpful to the church. We can get unified in a rumor. Or we can get unified in a gossip that tears down churches. They're terrible things. I've seen it happen. It causes pastors to get fired. It causes church to split. And when that happens, there is nothing good that happens from it. We need to be careful of what we are unified in. We are to be unified in Christ. Unified in Him. Theologian John Polhill writes this in his commentary on Acts. For the Christian community, fellowship and unity of purpose are helpful only when rooted in fellowship with Christ and in the unity of spirit. The structure of Acts should remain, remind us of this. The unity of the Christian community derives from and it is guided by the gift of the Spirit that lies at the heart of its life together. It's the Spirit who brings us unity in Christ. They came together in the unity of the message. They met at the temple, which at that time was their public meeting place. They met alongside unbelieving Jews in Jerusalem. And they found favor with them because of their love for each other and the poor. And they saw that it was genuine and it was authentic. They, their praise of God was heard and it was witnessed. It was their evangelistic approach to genuinely praise God and worship Him in unity. And it gave them an audience with unbelievers. Now the temple then, if we were to make a distinction between that and where we are now, that that would be what we call the institutional church, if you will. And I hear all the time from people when we ask them if they want to come to church, we hear like, well, they'll, they'll say they're Christians. This is pretty much unified in this. 
And then they'll say, well, I don't believe in the institutional church. I don't believe in organized religion. Have anybody ever heard that before? I mean, I think all of us have probably heard that. Let me tell you something. If you say that, you're not a Christian. You cannot be a Christian and hate the local church. Because that is God's institution for us to come together and worship Him for His glory. If you hate His bride, you do not belong to Him. And I'm telling you that, and I'm sorry, but you must believe in the church because it is His idea for us to come together to worship Him. But they didn't just meet. They didn't just meet in the church. They met in their homes. They met informally, like we've talked about. They rejoiced when they received their provisions. They talked and remembered what Christ did. Again, COVID, the lockdowns and stuff, and how the church has suffered. And we still don't even know all the implications of what that did to the church. But we know that not everybody has come back. Congregations are smaller now than they were because people think, well, I don't need church. I can worship God from my couch. And maybe you can worship God from your couch, but you cannot be the church from your couch. We need each other. I need you. Not for a job. I've only had this job for a month. Okay? I was doing fine not being the lead pastor here. I just been, I've been in church for 30 years just being a part of the congregation. Listen, God wants His people to gather together because He is a God who is communal. He loves to be among His people. Look in the Old Testament with the tabernacle. He made it temporary so that when the people moved, he moved with them and then they pitched it amongst the people. God wants to be amongst his people. Look at the book of Revelation. God wants to be among his people. We must want to be among our friends, our brothers and sisters. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 says, Let us consider how to stir up one another in love and good works, not neglecting to meet one another as the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. And as we've talked about, look, we don't know when Christ is going to return. We know that it's going to be soon, but soon could be 10,000 years or it could be tomorrow. It could be this afternoon. It could be right now. We just don't know. But we need to be ready. We need to be ready. And so we meet together because we know He's coming. And we want to gird each other up and be ready for it. When the other person is down, the next one brings that person up. We pray for each other. We share food together. We give our provisions to each other when we're in need. We share our love with one another. This is the church. This is how God designed it. It has not changed in 2,000 years. We need to be encouraging to each other. It's weird today. Marriages and relationships begin and end with texting. I tell you, God will not text you. It will not end. In fact, let's look at that. That's not how does God designed us to be with social media and the way that we have now. It's become so impersonal. Because even when Adam and Eve sinned in Genesis chapter 3, God went and confronted them in person. He didn't text them. 
He didn't call them out in a Facebook post. He went to them and talked to them face to face. And this is how God wants us to interact together. Does your face reflect the joy of being a part of his fellowship, of being a part of his church? When you're out and about in the world, what does your face look like? Are you reflecting Christ? I don't all the time. And I'm sad that I don't. But I need to. I need to do that. God wants us to do that. God wants us to do that. And then finally, our sixth point is that God added to their number daily. Acts, the end of Acts 2.47. And the Lord added to the number day by day those who were being saved. You see, these new believers, they were excited about their faith and salvation from Christ and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that gave them power to be effective witnesses. They were telling about Jesus wherever they went. You need to know what I saw. This is something you need to be a part of. Come. Come be a part of our church. Come and see what God is doing. Because they were excited about what God was doing. Are we excited about what God is doing? Sometimes it's easy to be negative. It's much easier to be negative than positive. But God wants us to be excited. We get nervous and fearful when we are encouraged to share our faith more. To go up to a stranger and ask them if they've ever heard of Jesus. We get nervous because we don't want to be rejected. We don't want a confrontation. We get nervous because we, we don't think we know what to say. That if we say the wrong thing, that their blood is on our hands. That they'll never go to heaven. But let's look at this and see what really happens. Who added to the church roles? It was the Lord who added than their numbers day by day. You see, we are the seed throwers. We are called to share our story and the story of God's love to others. It is the Lord who sorts out who believes and who doesn't believe. That is not our job. God added to their numbers day by day. He saves. We don't. We can't. We're not Jesus. Sometimes we forget that. Let me be a reminder to you. We are not Jesus. There's only one Jesus and we're not it. And thank goodness for that. Because if we knew what he really went through on that cross, we would never put ourselves on the throne. We would stay away from it as far as possible. He did it so we wouldn't have to. You see? That's the good news. All we have to do is share the good news. So it comes down to this. What kind of church do we want to be? If someone were to write about our church a hundred years from now, how would they describe us? Would they describe us as being devoted to these things, to the teaching of God's Word, to loving each other in the fellowship? to sharing together in the Lord's Supper as we do every week, to praying for each other? Would they write about our love for the Lord and for His people? 
our love for the poor and the hurting? How do you describe our church to others when you invite them to come? In our church, we have worship every Sunday morning at 10 a.m. We meet for prayer at 8 a.m. We have community group on the first and third Wednesdays of the month in our fellowship hall where we share a meal and some teaching, which we're going to be looking at this Wednesday. We're going to be looking at spiritual gifts. And it's sandwich. Is the Sandwiches is the theme that we have this week. Just to cut out the... I don't have to do the announcement now. We have, we have men's study on Tuesday mornings at 9.30 in the office next door. And I realize it's not really a great time for people who have jobs. But listen, if you men and ladies, for instance, want to have a Bible study that we are not currently having at a time that you would like to have one, let's talk and start one. Maybe God's calling you to lead a group. You might be surprised that you could do that. I don't have to be at every one of them. That is the job of the pastor is to unleash you to be able to use your gifting for the good of the kingdom. It's not healthy for me to do everything. And I'm thankful that I'm not. Let me just say that up front. We have a church where people are doing things. And I am excited by that. We have a ladies' book club. There's also, you women are ahead of us men, you're using technology to meet together online for a daily devotional. On Sundays, we take the Lord's Supper every week, as we talked about. And this week, we started use, utilizing an app called Echo Prayer, where we can share prayer requests and immediately know people are praying for us in that request. And if you want to be a part of this, it's simple, it's free. It's free for you to join and to use. Let me know and I'll get you started. All I need is your email address. And then you need to download it and the app works on both Apple as well as Android. There are e weekly emails I send out with information about the church. We even have a Facebook page. So there are plenty of opportunities where we can understand what's going on in our community. I encourage you two to, to meet together for coffee or for a meal like you guys did. The kind of church that we want to build is a godly church that is a great witness into our community. We want to make Jesus non ignorable in our community and we do this with our four core commitments and the first one is to worship God passionately and the second one is to connect with one another authentically and the third one is to grow to know God deeply and the fourth one is we go and show and tell the gospel boldly and I would add a fifth one and that fifth one would be that we pray for each other fervently we are only as good as our prayer life we need the help of the Lord. We cannot do this on our own. And all of this begins by knowing who Jesus is and turning our lives over to him and devoting ourselves to knowing and serving him. Listen, times change, but people don't. We all need Jesus to this very day. And we all still need 
each other. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this message, this example of the early church, Lord, and how we, as a 21st century church, can learn from their lessons, how we can be just like them in the times that we live in, where maybe church isn't as friendly in the community as it used to be. But God, we can still be your witness, and you can still add to our number daily. And we pray, Father, that that would happen, that we would have the faith of the early church, Lord, who felt the holy terror of coming into your presence and yet understood that it was out of your love and for what you did for us through Jesus that allows us the opportunity to meet together and to share in the Holy Spirit together. Father, I pray that if someone here today doesn't know Jesus as their Lord and Savior, that today would be that day. That they would devote themselves to His teaching and they would love Him, Lord, and they would confess their sins over to Him. And Lord, You would transform their lives into a new creation. And they would be a part of Your fellowship forever. Father, I thank You for this day. I thank You for this message. And I pray, God, that we do all of these things to Your glory. In Your name we pray. Amen. Thank <laughs> you.